For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson with the latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up Newsletter and with some bad news if you're a bird. Big bad energy companies are killing you and nobody cares because they're wind companies, not those awful oil refineries. In the United States, one of them was just found guilty of making 150 rare eagles into bird salad. And what's the government doing? Subsidizing it, of course. A new study says, quote, of California's 23 vulnerable bird species studied, barn owls, golden eagles, roadrunners, yellow-billed cuckoos, and so on, scientists have found 11 are now experiencing at least a 20% decline in their population growth rates because wind turbines and solar panels are killing them and or destroying their limited-range habitat, end quote. The American firm that recently fessed up to killing those eagles is called ESI. It's a wholly-owned subsidiary of Next Era Energy Resources, which is very Next Era in its marketing. And to be sure, after pleading guilty, ESI was hit with fines and restitution exceeding $8 million for deliberately ignoring warnings about where it was siting its turbines. But a U.S. Department of Justice press release says, quote, ESI and its affiliates received hundreds of millions of dollars in federal tax credits for generating electricity from wind power at facilities that had operated knowing that multiple eagles would be killed and wounded without legal authorization and without, in most instances, paying restitution or compensatory mitigation. End quote. So that $8 million is just window dressing for them and for the authorities imposing the punishment. Whereas if hunters kill these kinds of birds, they can get crushing fines and even jail time because they are bad people. Still, it's all worth it to reach the promised net zero land, right? When you listen to people like Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau describing the shimmering emerald green economy to which they are leading us, you can practically smell the milk and honey wafting over Jordan, can't you? So, who needs some boring, grumpy old Auditor General going, uh, guys, it's all just rock and sand in every direction? Alas, it turns out that we Canadians do, because the top finding in the Auditor General study is a model of clarity, unless you're its target. Quote, the federal government was not prepared to support a just transition to a low-carbon economy, end quote. Of course, Canada's government is unusual even among governments for its tendency to assume that virtue signaling makes short work of practical difficulties. But that's an assumption that the Auditor General makes short work of, with blunt language like, quote, Natural Resources Canada was mandated to lead the reporting on results of the activities implemented to support a just transition for the affected workers and communities. However, we found that this had not been done, end quote. Unfortunately, the auditors themselves are victims of many illusions, including the magical power of Yes Minister's infamous interdepartmental committees. Quote, To enable a coordinated approach to planning and implementing a just transition for Canadians, Natural Resources Canada, with the support of Employment and Social Development Canada, should formalize a government structure to ensure that all relevant federal departments and agencies have clear roles, responsibilities, and accountabilities for advancing the federal support for a just transition to a low-carbon economy." Look, if they could walk that way, we wouldn't still be wandering in this desert, now would we? Discussing where we are and where we're going might be getting harder, though, because under the general heading of There's Nothing Bad That Climate Change Can't Do, a recent piece on Babbel.com laments the imminent demise of perhaps half of the world's 7,000 languages by the year 2100. The piece concedes that, quote, Of course it's impossible to attribute this to any one single cause. Genocide, policy, persecution, and economic pressures all play a role in our increasingly globalized world, end quote. But we all know the real reason. 
quote, climate change is also endangering the survival of many of the world's most at-risk linguistic populations, end quote. And if you're wondering how, well, apparently the world's isolated monolingual fishing villages are being washed away by rising seas, not by air travel, paved roads, television, radio, the internet, cell phones, and stuff like that. But if we get the temperature to go down over the next 78 years, who knows? The long-extinct language of Cornwall might spring proud and vibrant from the sea once again. For our part, we wish someone or something would kill whatever programming language it is that makes those climate models so reliably unreliable that it's almost beside the point to discuss why. Still, Charles Rotter points out on What's Up With That to a new paper that starts, quote, the terrestrial carbon cycle is a major source of uncertainty in climate projections, end quote. It's already heretical to admit that there's uncertainty in climate projections. But since the natural carbon cycle is vast compared to the human component, it's very serious that the researchers found not only that the models are basically a bunch of guesswork, but that the guesswork is internally contradictory and nobody noticed. Specifically, the model estimates of global gross primary production of CO2 and of soil respiration of CO2 are incompatible, and they didn't bother fixing them, so at least they'd be making guesses that, however inconsistent with reality, were consistent with one another. It makes you wonder what they do spend their time doing. Oh, wait a minute, we know what they're doing. Another new study says warmer weather will unleash plagues because, quote, over the next 50 years, climate change could drive more than 15,000 new cases of mammals transmitting viruses to other mammals, end quote. And is 15,000 a lot? Well, to answer that question, you'd have to know how many such cases there are today, which is anyone's guess. And you'd have to know how much warmer it will get and what animals will do in response, including bumping into one another and, if they do, biting one another. The press release, and yes, it being the 21st century, there is one, waves Ebola, coronaviruses, and bats at us before yelling, quote, as viruses start to jump between host species at unprecedented rates, the authors say that the impacts on conservation and human health could be stunning, end quote. Stunning, unprecedented, and absurd. The study goes all pseudo-precise, for instance, with, quote, projections of geographic range shifts for 3,139 mammal species, end quote. Not 3,142, not 3,086, not, who knows, maybe a bunch, 3,139 exactly. And given how many vague assumptions you have to make about how many species can swap pathogens, how readily they jump from, say, a vervet to a hippo, how often it's happening now, how patterns of interaction will change by 2050, how much of the change will be primarily driven by climate and so on, you might as well have the vervet throw darts at a spreadsheet instead of biting the hippo or vice versa. And now, a word from our sponsor. And that's you. Or at least it should be. Because if you want us to keep annoying the right people with our newsletters and our videos, you, our regular viewers, need to step up with a one-time or monthly contribution. I'm not talking a lot of money, unless you're, like, extra rich. The price of a cup of coffee a month. That's what we need from the 10,000 or so people who tune in weekly. If you do that, the video and the newsletter will keep bringing sanity to the climate debate and to you. And now, back to me. In the newsletter, we also look at people calling the current heat wave in India proof of climate change, since, of course, it never had them before. Climate Home News says, quote, The heat waves sweeping South Asia were foretold in climate models. Until we all stop burning coal, oil, and gas, they will get worse, end quote. 
And the BBC explains that, yeah, India's always been so hot, people resorted to things like rubbing raw mango on themselves to avoid heat stroke, and that odd local weather patterns are involved. And our hasty research indicates that northern India has five to six heat waves a year, whereas further south in Chennai, the year is divided into warm, hot, sweltering, and, quote, it is hot and oppressive year-round, end quote. But outside the computer models, how accurate are India's temperature records over the past century anyway? How do we know what really happened in the past? And are they predicting that it will keep getting worse? Because that would be a prediction we could test, which is how science works. This week's newsletter also continues our CDN by the Sea series in the city-state of Singapore, perched on the southern tip of Malaysia, where they gaze in horror at the rising sea ready to engulf them in a meter of water in, uh, 370 years. Or maybe more, because, as you can see from the chart of the annual rate at the Raffles Lighthouse since 1980, not only are there significant gaps in the record, there's no rise at all in the last decade. Still, if it does go up a meter by... 2392, we predict that the locals will find the cash for a seawall. We also note that Iceland nearly got a different name, because a recent study in Quaternary Science Reviews says that after the last glaciation ended 10,000 years ago, Iceland warmed up to the point that 6,000 years ago it was a forested tree land with no glaciers in its middle. From 8,000 to 6,000 years ago, summers there averaged about 3 degrees centigrade warmer than they do in today's hottest years ever. But about 5,000 years ago, the weather began getting cooler, and in fits and starts, the ice began growing. The 6th century was noted for, quote, historical accounts of crop failures, famines, and dry cold fogs in Europe and Asia, end quote, the authors observe. And worse was yet to come, because it seems cold isn't that great for crops, animals, or people. Whereas CO2 seems to be. Over at the CO2Science.org archive, they looked at some mature home oak, Quercus elex L, trees, growing around a natural CO2-emitting spring near Laetico, Pisa, Italy. Yes, there are such things. Giving those oak lifetime exposure to atmospheric CO2 concentrations of approximately 1,500 and 400 parts per million, depending how close they were. And it seems that the trees being hit with the full savage blast of carbon pollution grew leaves in spring about two and a half times as fast, even as the ones with 400 parts per million. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I suggest they put that in their computer and model it. <laughs>